All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Bible Time with Pastor Brian. This is, of course, your host, Pastor Brian. I'm so excited that you could join me again here today as we can continue our passage um, or stroll, I guess, through the passage of Galatians chapter 5. And so last week we talked about the deeds of the flesh. We talked about sensuality, immorality, sorcery, witchcraft, idolatry, all these things that are a product of your flesh. And Paul doesn't leave it there. He, he does give um, quite the rundown, although he says the list that he gave wasn't an exhaustive one. It's not all of those things, uh, or that's not all of the things that come from the flesh. There are many, many more that are similar. Um, he doesn't leave it there, though. He gave, he gave the church, or churches at Galatia, the chance to remedy those things by telling them what the fruits or works of the Spirit would be on the other side of it. So he wants them to be able to compare and contrast these. For if you see somebody, um, especially in the church setting that he was writing to, when you would see them, if they looked more like this first group that he mentioned than they did the second one, then more than likely they're not a true brother or sister in Christ. Because it is very important that if they have the Holy Spirit within them, these following things that he's going to talk about are going to just naturally appear from that. Um, the fruits of the Spirit is what the King James calls it. Literally the production or the produce of following the Holy Spirit of God. The word that's actually used there in Galatians chapter 5.22, let's actually just read that really quick. So Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So actually the NASB uses the same uh, word there as well. But that is the karpos pneuma, which is just an act or work or deed that originates in the Holy Spirit. And they choose, um, or Paul chooses to equate it to fruit as well. Like it's a pro like produce. When you have an apple tree, it's going to produce apples. If you have a grapevine, it's going to produce grapes. That's just what they do. And so if you are um, following the desires of the flesh, if you're giving in to those set, those uh, fleshly, sinful desires, you're going to produce the works of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh that we talked about last week. But if you are rooted and grounded in the Spirit, and the works that you are doing, are manifesting themselves in such a way as that it points to that, then that is what Paul is wanting to do. And so the traits that follow um, when he says that about the fruits of the Spirit or the acts or deeds of the Spirit, the things that follow are what should be part of a Christian's life. And they are definitely in stark contrast to the deeds of the flesh that were mentioned before. And the first one we're going to talk about today, and we're actually going to spend our entire study talking about this one word, so bear with me if you can. It's the word love should be the first thing that's mentioned. Um, and the word that's actually used here is agape. And if you're familiar with the Greek language, at least in a very like basic level there, you know that love is something that the Greeks had quite a few concepts of. Whereas in English, we have one word. So I would say I love my shoes, I would say I love hamburgers, and I would say I love my wife. I do not love those things in the same way or have the same depth of love. But you would understand that, or hopefully you would understand that. And hopefully I would love my wife differently than I do love my shoes or a hamburger. But that's something that we understand based on the context of who, that, who or what that love is being directed towards. The Greeks 
didn't do that. They just gave a word that meant a specific type of love. And that's what agape is. And we've actually talked about it before. It's a type of love that seeks the well-being for the one whom is loved. It is the same love that is described as what God has to mankind back in John 3.16. And it is also the type of love that Christians are supposed to have for each other. I wrote down a few passages um, if you want to take note of them in your uh, notebook, if you're following along with notes, or in your phone. I know some people have note-taking apps on their phones as well. But if you would like to write some of these down, these are all verses where the exact same context and the exact same word are used to describe love. Matthew 24, 12 is a really good one. Um, that's actually where Jesus um, Jesus teaching about love. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 1 through 4, that we're actually going to read some of that later um, in the study here today. It's the chapter on love. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, continue in love. 2 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul's love for the church at Corinth. Philemon, uh, verses 5 and 7, Paul speaking of Philemon's faith, talks about how much love Philemon has. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul encouraging Timothy. Hebrews 6.10, promise that God will not forget the labors of their love. Hebrews 10.24, provoking each other to love and to good works. And John 13.35, Jesus talking about the disciples being known for the love that they have for each other. And then 1 John 4.7, another encouragement to love one another. So all of these have that same agape love. And the idea of agape love is more than just tolerating someone or just generally liking them. It's so much deeper than that idea. It is seeking out their benefit and well-being. The person that is the direction of that agape, or that that agape love is directed towards. Um, you're seeking out their well-being and their benefit. Now, how do you do this? I wrote down a few thoughts about this concept here. The first one is you have to know what their well-being is in order to be able to love them in that way. And how do you do that? Well, you have to get to know the person. You have to know who they are. You have to know a lot more about them than just surface-level stuff. So knowing someone on a superficial basis is not enough to fully seek out their benefit. Maybe you can meet the obvious needs like food and shelter and warmth and water and clothes. And those are great things. Don't get me wrong. Those are great, great ways to reach people. Uh, for the gospel of Christ. However, if you have the ability, seek out how you can seek their well-being in more than just physical things. We all have more needs than just physical ones. In Galatians 6.2, um, Paul encourages the churches at Galatia to bear each other's burdens. And that's not talking about um, your desire to have a hamburger at lunch or your desire to want to go get ice cream or to go get a drink of water. No, when it says bearing one of those burdens, that's going so much deeper. That's coming alongside somebody that's struggling and praying for them and helping them and giving them everything you've got to help them through whatever they're going through. But you have to know that person um, in order to do so. So in so doing, you serve the well-being of the whole person. Two, you have to act on the knowledge that you have. It's one thing to know what somebody's well-being is, and what can benefit them the best and the most, but it's also another to act on that. So having that knowledge, having that ability, and then acting upon it are very crucial and very important to spreading this agape love with people. So you have to have both of those in order to show the love that's mentioned here. 
And specifically going back to what we talked about last week with those deeds of the flesh, there are a few of them that I brought up that agape love just flies in the face of and immediately disperses and dispels and banishes from the life of a Christian. One of them is enmity. Uh, cannot be actively opposed to or hostile against somebody if you are seeking their well-being. And it makes holding a grudge utterly impossible if you truly have a level of agape love for somebody. You cannot, will not hold grudges if you love somebody and try to seek their well-being. It's just impossible to do that. Strife, even in the midst of disagreements, you cannot be angry or bitter about it if you truly love them. It should be our goal to love those who, we, who disagree with us and not to own that person, not to seek a way to make them look foolish, seek a way to get at them and destroy their ideas and their arguments and things. That's a very worldly way of looking at arguments. It's a very worldly way of looking at debates. And amongst Christians, we are supposed to be known by our love, like I mentioned before when Jesus talking to the disciples. We're supposed to be known by how much we love each other. But if we spend all of our time arguing and the world sees how much we argue with each other, why are lost people going to want to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus? If they look at us and they're like, oh, well, if that's what following Jesus brings, I don't want that. That's just all full of hatred and bitterness and just squabbling and fighting, and dissensions, and disagreements. And we we need to be better examples of that. You know, it's one thing to argue theological points. I mean, that, that happens. Disagreements show up. Not discounting that fact. But strife should not be a part of it. And if you truly love somebody in the way that agape love is sharing, you're not going to want to cause such issues with people. You're going to look at disagreements as abilities for, or opportunities, not abilities, as opportunities for you to learn or for you to teach somebody else something they might not have known before. Another one that can't exist if you love somebody in an agape sense is envying. It's loving someone propels us to rejoice when God blesses them, even if we are tempted to think that we deserve what they have. Let's, let me give you a quick example of this. Say you spend your whole life training other Christians for a specific ministry, and some of your trainees become more popular or well-recognized in that same ministry than you are. How would you agape love somebody? How would that force you to respond? It would be something along the lines of, congratulations, I'm so excited to see where God is taking you, and actually mean it. Not just say it to, to check the box of following you know, what Scripture and the Spirit teaches, but actually meaning it in your heart and in your spirit that you are excited for that person. Even if God has called them into something, a ministry that looks so much bigger than what you have been called into. Don't hold grudges and don't envy what they have because God has given you a specific purpose. Consider Paul's conversion. You know, who was the Christian that helped Paul begin his journey as a follower and missionary for Christ? There's a guy that lived in Damascus by the name of Ananias. Did he have the same impact on the early church that Paul did? No. Did he write half of the New Testament? No. He even knew that God had called Paul into something so much greater. Because if you go back to Acts 19, uh, or not Acts 19, Acts 9 verse 15, Paul has been called by God. And, you know, he told Ananias this, Jesus did, that God had called him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was Ananias' um, opportunity 
to love on Paul, to take him in, and to start him on his journey of faith. And think about that. He did as Christ commanded him, and he was instrumental in Paul's conversion, even if his impact was minimal compared to Paul's. Now, there were people whose lives were forever impacted by Ananias, Paul being one of them, of course. But think about how many more were impacted by the life of Paul, by his ministry, by his journeys, by his teachings. And, you know, we should take the same spirit about it that Ananias did. When God came to him, Jesus came to him and told him, he said, Hey, Ananias, I have this guy that's coming. And he gave his name, and Ananias said, oh yeah, I know who that guy is. He has been just absolutely persecuting your church. And Jesus says, not anymore. He says, I have a job for him. I have a task for him. I've called him to be my uh, representative, my missionary, to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And he gave it to Ananias to be the one to take care of Paul and to put him on his journey here. But, you know, there are so many times in our life where we might face the same thing. God might call us into a ministry of some sort, whether it's youth leading or uh, being a pastor, or being a teacher, being a choir director, or whatever you might be. And somebody that you train, somebody that shows up to you that's green and doesn't know what they're doing, and you have the ability to lay that foundational groundwork for them. And then they go on to bigger and better things, way bigger than the ministry that you were in at the time when they showed up. And maybe even still in at, while you're watching them do these great, amazing things for the Lord. And you're still in the same ministry that you were in to start with. You know, it can become an easy thing for our flesh to do to try to tell us, like, oh, well, you were the one that did that. You were the one that got them to that spot. You deserve what they have. They need to work their way up like you did. And that's not always the case. You know, God chooses who he desires to choose to carry his message to this world. That's not for us to decide. That's not for us to pick and choose where somebody's meant to go and how quickly they're supposed to get there. It's up to us to give our support and prayers to people as they start those journeys, as they get those opportunities. It is our duty as fellow Christians to be there for each other and to bear one another's burdens. And, you know, you can't do that if you're envying somebody. And jealousy plays into that as well. If you love someone in an agape way, you will not seek to beat them and look better than they do. You won't seek to do that if you love somebody in this sense. Outbursts of anger is also one that disappears. Seeking out the well-being of others involves providing the safest environment for them possible, giving the believer the duty to control their tempers. You cannot love well if you are angry. That's just impossible. You can't do it. If I am being honest, you can connect love in the agape sense to other ones as well. Each of the previously mentioned deeds of the flesh that we talked about, you can actually connect it back to those. Um, the concept of living a life dedicated to seeking the well-being of others is in direct opposition to something like sexual immorality. God commands that intercourse be reserved for marriage. Not doing so leads to more failures and can directly cause fractured relationships and hurt. Same thing goes for impurity. 
sensuality. Seeking the well-being of others never includes being inappropriate with your speech towards them or out of control with your desires. It's just not a part of it. Idolatry, serving idols over the Lord, leads to a life filled with paganism and selfishness. You can't love someone if you don't follow the true God of love. You just can't. You don't know God, and you don't follow the Lord. These fruits of the Spirit won't appear anyway. There might be shadows or just um, visions of them, I guess, but there won't be that actual lifestyle change with inside yourself that leads you towards those things and that causes you to begin to tend toward those things if you are producing um, these fruits of the Spirit. Sorcery, too, no matter the context, sorcery seeks to change something in an unnatural way, thereby telling God that you do not trust His judgment and will use any means necessary to make it what you want, essentially saying that you know better than God. And that's completely wrong. God knows best. We do not. Now, how does that connect to love? Well, if you're seeking to change something, that means you're telling God that he does not know what he's doing. That means you are looking at a situation that either you or someone else is in and saying, I can do better than what God can. And that's completely false. God loves his people. God seeks the best for his people. God loves his people in an agape sense. And because of that, he allows us to go through things and face things and see things that, you know, by themselves and alone, they're, they're hard to go through. They're tough. They're stressful situations. But we're supposed to go through them anyway. God has given those to us. He's either sent them directly or allowed us to face them in order for us to, to fulfill the purpose he has laid out before us. And trying to change that in some supernatural or unnatural way is flying in the face of trusting in the Lord. And then also, we talked about with sorcery last week too, about the use of drugs and things that cloud your judgment. And that kind of goes into drunkenness and carousing as well that we'll get into in a little bit. But not having a clear conscience and a clear mind is not a good thing if you're a Christian. You're supposed to be able to think clearly, and you're supposed to be able to think and serve with love. And you can't do that without having a sober mind. Disputes, dissensions, factions, you can't love someone well if you are constantly fighting them and seeking their destruction. It's just impossible. If you are constantly seeking out for them to be destroyed, or for them to be downtrodden, and for them to be look, to made look foolish, kind of like we talked about with um, strife a little bit ago, is you can't serve someone and you can't love them well if that's what you're seeking to do. If your entire life's goal is destroying other people and causing fractions and causing disputes and uh, dissensions amongst people, that's not of the Lord. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. That's not a work that comes from Almighty God. That is a deed of the flesh that tries to do that. Um, on drunkenness and carousing, not having a sober mind and allowing yourself to follow the lusts and passions of the flesh with no restraint leads to pain, hurt, and more destruction. Hardly the proper attitude to have if you claim to agape someone else. 
it's hardly um, faithful of you and holy of you and Christ-like of you to spend your time reveling and not being able to control any part of you, specifically when it comes to being rowdy and rambunctious and drunk with alcohol and other intoxicants. It clouds your mind, it clouds your judgment, and it causes you to be in a state of mind that is dangerous to yourself and to people around you. Anybody that's ever had that feeling before of being drunk or being high or anything will tell you that in that moment, in those times of um, being intoxicated with whatever they've chosen to intoxicate themselves with, they had no self-control. They had no ability to stop things that they knew that they should be able to stop because you're just not able to do so anymore. It shuts off and just kind of neutralizes the part of your brain that handles self-control, your prefrontal cortex, if you want to go into the psychological uh, medical term for it. The part of your brain that controls decision-making is severely, severely inhibited when you do those things. And also, you know, when you get caught up in a crowd as well, if you've got a little bit of those intoxicants mixed in with you, and you get into a big crowd of people that's doing all sorts of stuff. They're destroying things, or they're acting in ways that they know that they shouldn't, and you know that you shouldn't be acting in either. It becomes easier to give in to those things. It becomes easier to follow after what those people are doing, and also actively participate in it. Because you're so um, intoxicated in your mind, and you don't have the ability to think clearly about something. And if you have that and you start serving that part of yourself, you can't love people properly. You know, so many people tend to say, well, I've got a church life and um, my regular life, my work life or my friend's life. It should all be your life and your walk with Christ. And because of that, those people that you encounter, whether it be at work or at church or at school or wherever you're at, those people that you come in contact with, you have the obligation, you have the duty, you have the command from God himself to love those people as he has loved you. And that's a pretty tall order. It's a pretty tall task to love somebody in the same way that God loved you. Because, see, he loved you so much that he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to die for you so that you could spend eternity with him to where your sins and the punishment that was meant for them would be taken off from you and placed onto his cross, nailed to his cross, and taken away from you. You know, that, that should be our focus in life, is to no matter who we're with or what situation we're involved in, we're Christians. We're supposed to be little Christ in whatever we do. No matter who's around, no matter who's watching, if anyone is, we are supposed to be reflections of Jesus. And one of the best ways to do that, and especially considering Galatians 5.22 uh, right here, is to love people and to love them well. And in order to do so, you got to know the one that loved you well too. And you got to love them the same way that he loved you. Love is the linchpin for following the Lord. If you don't have love, doesn't matter what else you have. 
It is useless without love. Just as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, Love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we're so blessed and thankful for this opportunity you've allowed us to have to study here in Galatians 5.22. And I pray, God, that no matter where we are, no matter who's in front of us, and no matter the situation, that you would give us the strength and the courage to love people well and to seek and to serve their well-being and benefit above our own, and to show them that love, that agape love that you have given us. We love you. God, we praise you and thank you again. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next week.